0: Uh, Well, we come to the third and last in our series of Habakkuk and uh, one of the questions that I've been uh, asking each week is, how is it that we should be living in the world? As we observe the world, round about it, and we see both some of the joys, but often most of the trials and struggles in the world, how is it that we should rightly respond? I want to address this question particularly this week, uh, hence the title of the talk, Living Righteously, uh, by asking the question, what frame of reference are you going to use in terms of making decisions? What guide are you going to use in terms of knowing how to live your life? Uh, What is it that drives not only your actions, but also your motivations? Perhaps it's your upbringing. Perhaps it's the way in which your parents raised you. Perhaps it's a significant influence from your schooling days, either of teachers or of peer groups. Perhaps now in the freedom that you have at university, you've extended this to other things like personal investigation, reading all sorts of other books, cruising the internet when you really should be studying just to find out how to make decisions about certain things. Uh, Perhaps it's a different peer group now that you've moved into university. But what guide shall we use? And how do we know when we're living righteously? Is it that we get to the end of the day and we feel that we've had a good day? Is that the measure by which we know we've lived righteously? When we wake up in the morning and look at our calendar, be it empty or full, what drives us to know how to actually live rather than just what we should be doing? Well, I want to suggest that uh, the the, uh, prophecy of Habakkuk starts to give us some significant understanding and answers to these particular questions. Over the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at Habakkuk, we've addressed a couple of answers... So some significant questions. The first two being, is God actually listening? In the midst of the world, as we observe it, does God actually listen? Does he hear? And the two questions that Habakkuk was answering, firstly, is that question, but secondly, will the wickedness, which appears partly contradictory on God's behalf of the Babylonians, be actually restrained as they come and invade Jerusalem? I suggested that last week, and particularly last week, as we looked at the idea of judgment, that... The answer to those questions of Habakkuk is yes, positively. It's a positive answer. God is listening, and God actually answers Habakkuk's cry. So much so that the picture we get in chapter 2 is actually a fairly terrifying picture of judgment that comes upon, the, comes upon the nation of Babylon. But here, in the midst of this, we actually see something about the nature of God and his character, don't we? We see that God is a God who is in control of things. That, into this particular situation, God is in control. I suggested that over the last couple of weeks we learned four particular things from Habakkuk. Firstly, that God listens and hears. Secondly, that he acts justly in all situations. God acts justly in all situations, not just in some situations. For if God is truly in control, then surely he is acting justly in all situations. Thirdly, God does act but he acts primarily for his people. He acts primarily for his people. And fourthly, God acts, and when he acts, it it is in his good timing. And I think at this point we run the risk of divorcing these four truths that we see in Habakkuk from our present-day experience of God, somehow presuming that God used to act like that, that was the Old Testament, Uh, but since then we've had Jesus and God acts very differently. Well, I want to suggest that the character of God and the way in which He is and the way in which He acts now is the same as the way in which He was and the way in which He acted then. But do you feel the weight of these claims? For if this is the case, then this gives us a significant advancement towards knowing how we should live. Well, last week we looked at the judgment of God. And we've seen that God's judgment demonstrates that he is not a God of contradictions. He is not fickle or capricious. He actually judges and judges justly. And his judgment is consistent with his word and it takes the form of the judgment against the nation of Israel by the Babylonians. And then because of the way in which the Babylonians acted, the judgment of God also comes against them. And in doing so, we see something else about the character of God, that he is just and that he is on for redemption. But the means of redemption actually comes through judgment. Now, we could probably tick the box and "Well, yes, that's sure that's the way he works in the Old Testament, but sure that's not the way he works now. Well, I want to suggest that, no, this is the way in which God acts today. And so if these great truths about God are still today, consistent then we do well to again pose the question, how is it then we are to live? Well, I want to turn again to Habakkuk and see how he responds to these great claims about the character of God. I want to suggest today that Habakkuk is firstly very realistic about the situation that he's in. He is very realistic about the situation that he's in. He recognises the invading Babylonians and he is preparing to await their invasion. Chapter 3, verse 16. Notice what he says. He knows that he's about to get invaded. Sure, he's looking for the judgment to come on them, the invaders, but I think he recognised the reality of his situation. But secondly, I want to suggest that Habakkuk's response is based around two key things. Firstly, a right recognition of who God is in his character. And secondly, a right remembrance of the way in which God has acted in the past. A right recognition of who God is in his character and a right recognition of how God has acted in the past. Now, if you place yourself in the Habakkuk situation, I wonder how you would respond. Someone is laying siege to your place of residence. You're there pretty much alone. Your other friends and family have perhaps deserted you. And you're wondering, where is God in the midst of this situation? And so you cry out to God, but there is no apparent, immediate response. How do you respond? What do you do? Well, let's look at how Habakkuk responds in the situation. Notice the first thing that he does. He doesn't act. He waits. Habakkuk, upon crying out to God in the beginning of chapter 2, waits. And he waits because in chapter 1 he has recognised who God is. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, he recognises God as a holy God, a God who appoints judgment, and a God who cannot stand in justice. And so Habakkuk waits on a reply. Secondly, Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 3 and 6, recognises that God will be certain in his coming. And God comes as a judge. But notice also that in chapter 3, as I suggested last week, that Habakkuk remembers how God has acted in the past. Habakkuk desperately wishes there in chapter 3, did you feel the weight of chapter 3, verse 2? O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk remembers the way that God has acted in the past and strongly desires that God would once again act like this in the present. In the midst of the wrath of God, Habakkuk pleads for mercy. And at that point I think you see the glimmer of some hope that perhaps God will still be merciful in this situation. And despite all of this, The prophecy ends with this message of Habakkuk despite the barrenness, despite the apparent emptiness, despite the desolation. What does Habakkuk do? Notice what he does. Look there in the chapter 3, verse 18. Yet will I once again despair that God has left me alone. Once again will I despair that God has not heard my cry. That's not what he says. But I wonder if that's what we may if that's how we may respond notice how Habakkuk responds in chapter chapter 3 verse 18 yet I will rejoice in the Lord rejoice in the Lord Um, Habakkuk have you really understood the situation you're in you have nothing you're about to be destroyed you're about to be overtaken by the most powerful army in the entire world and what are you doing you're not despairing what does he say yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And why? Notice his motivation. Where does it go? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So I would suggest that Habakkuk knows how to live in his particular situation. Why? Well, because he understands why things are happening. He recognises that God is acting justly and he is trusting that the judgement of God, when it comes, will be a just judgement. And so he rightly, in the midst of the wrath of God, cries out for mercy. Last week we heard a lot about the judgment of God. I think one of the things that was missing, which someone talked to me, a couple of people talked to me about afterwards, was where is the mercy of God in his judgment? I didn't speak a lot about it last week. And part of the reason for that was intentional because when we just look at Habakkuk, There is not much about the mercy of God in there. Chapter 2 is significantly driving towards the nature of the destruction that will come upon the Babylonians. But to be fair, that as we move beyond Habakkuk and look at the way in which God acts in judging, we also do need to recognise that God is both a God of wrath and of judgement, but at the same time a God who is merciful. Remember, God desires to save. God wants to save those who are his, those who are his treasured precious possession, which is why God saves ultimately a remnant and the nation of Israel. And here, Habakkuk trusts that as one of God's people, God will have mercy in this situation, that God will remain true to his character and judge justly, but also have mercy on those whom he will have mercy on. Habakkuk knows how to live in his situation because he knows that God is a God of salvation. And unlike the Babylonians who are proud, Habakkuk knows what it is to live trusting God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, I want to suggest, goes to the heart of how Habakkuk knows he should live. The righteous shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by his faithfulness, or the righteous shall live by faithfulness, depending on which translation you go with. Let's spend a moment looking at this particular verse. How is it that we are to live righteously? Well, this particular word righteous actually has a a range of meanings, but it's predominantly used, particularly in the Old Testament, so that it may be translated as to be straight. To be straight. It denotes a conformity to a particular standard. That's the the sense of the word that's being used. And it is used predominantly of God's activities and man's relationship to God. Used predominantly of God's activities and man's relationship with God. So if you'd like to know what it means to be righteous, the first place to look is God. Notice what the writer says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He says, "...the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just." A God of faithfulness and without wrongdoing, He is righteous and upright. The very nature of the word flows from the very character of God and who He is. God is always straight. God always conforms to His own standard. There is no falsehood. There is no deviation. There is only, only ever has been, only ever is and only ever will be a straightness to God a righteousness and that flows out of his character and who he is in his being which means he is thoroughly dependable he is thoroughly trustworthy and these things come not particularly because we observe his actions but because his actions are consistent with his character how do we know that God will act consistently well because when God speaks he speaks truthfully. He speaks from his character, from his nature. And his actions are then in accordance with his speech. The two go together. So how does that help us try to understand what it means to be righteous? Who will be the righteous? Well, I would suggest that the righteous one is the one who makes God's righteous standards his own or her own and lives in accordance with them. If you would like to know what it means to live righteously, look to God and live like God. Now there's some contention over the way in which this particular verse should be translated. Some of your Bibles may have footnotes to talk about whether or not it says the righteous shall live by his faith or live by his faithfulness. A couple of thoughts here. When we read the New Testament and we deal with the idea of righteous and righteousness, a large volume of trees and ink and greenhouse gas has therefore been spilt or consumed in trying to resolve this issue. But before we go there, I want to just back up a step and think, what do you think Habakkuk meant when God had said the righteous will live by faith? Well, up until that point, there was no New Testament uh, which I may have been a great relief for Habakkuk because he didn't have to trawl through all those commentaries that have been written on it to try and work out what God was saying. What does Habakkuk think of when this phrase is given? I want to suggest that Habakkuk thinks of Abraham. Habakkuk thinks of Abraham and the faith of Abraham, the righteousness of Abraham. I want to suggest that this goes back to the nature of faith of the forefather of Israel, Abraham. And so when Habakkuk wants to know what it means to live by faith, what I take it is he's going back to is the way in which Abraham responded to God. So you remember Abraham responded to the call of God and obeyed and lived a life of faith that was consistent to the extent that he was able to be consistent with the character of God. Now, as we move to the New Testament, let's see how the New Testament writers understand it. Well, there are three places, three places, where the New Testament writers pick up Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. You might like to write these down. I'm going to read all of them together. First one is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Uh, the second place is Galatians chapter 3. Uh, in context, verses 10 to 14. And the last one is Hebrews chapter 10, uh, uh, Hebrews 10, verses 35 to 39. Now, you might like to look those up. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, and hear how Paul picks up Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And at this point, I want to defer to the writers of the New Testament as to how to understand Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. Uh, given that they are far more intelligent than I will ever be, I take it. And they are actually divinely inspired when it comes to write about Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter one, verses sixteen to seventeen. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Second reference. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Hear how Paul uses it in this particular context. In Galatians 3, Paul says this, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, the little word there that Paul uses of Gentiles is just talking about non-Jews. Third reference, turn to Hebrews 10 before we make some comment on what we think these three passages are saying. Hebrews 10, verses 35-39, to where the writer to the Hebrews says this, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now, in the context, what are these three passages telling us about Habakkuk 2 with regard to what it means to live righteously in the world? I want to suggest four things. Firstly, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and the nature of what it means to live righteously by faith, firstly, is considered in the light of the Gospel. It's considered in the light of the proclamation of that great message that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice how Paul uses it in Romans, where he uses those two verses, three verses, as the great springboard into pretty much the rest of his entire argument in the letter to Romans. And the verse that he jumps from? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Secondly, in the light of the New Testament, this verse in Habakkuk has a salvific aspect, it's dealing predominantly with salvation. And it's much bigger than just dealing with the salvation of Israel. It's dealing with the salvation of not only Israel, but also non-Jews, those, i.e. those, the Gentiles. Not only is it dealing with more than just the salvation of the nation of Israel and the Jews, but the means of salvation is not by law, but by grace, lived out by faith. Particularly, you see that in Galatians 3. Thirdly, the passage from Habakkuk is considered in the context of the return of Jesus. See, Habakkuk considers the passage in the light of the imminent judgment of the Babylonians coming upon the nation of Israel. The New Testament writers consider it well, in the light of the imminent return of Jesus, the one who is coming to judge the world, the one who will show mercy to those on whom he will have mercy. See, for the New Testament writers, it's phrased in the sense of that great day of the coming of, the God, of God, the day of the Lord. Yes, a day of judgment. But it's phrased not just in judgment on Jerusalem, not just in judgment on the Babylonians, but the very return of Jesus. And fourthly, it's interesting to note that all three of the writers use Habakkuk in their argument to direct you towards a particular manner of living in the here and now. They direct you towards a particular manner of living in the here and now. And so you see it particularly in Paul's argument in Romans, where after his great theological understanding of what's going on, in the latter chapter of Romans he directs you towards how then should we live. Notice in Hebrews what the writer to the Hebrews does, if you've still got it open. After he quotes Habakkuk in chapter 10, he moves into chapter 11 where he tells you about those that have lived by faith. And notice what he says in the beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews, where he then says this in the beginning of chapter 12 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the glory of God. The New Testament writers use this passage in Habakkuk as an argument to direct us as to how to live. So we want to know how to live in the world. We want to know what to do with our life. We want to know how to make decisions. I want to suggest to you that as we come to the conclusion of these talks on Habakkuk, that the message of Habakkuk is this. Live righteously with patient rejoicing. Live righteously with patient rejoicing. Someone comes up to you this afternoon and says, how shall I live? Live righteously with patient rejoicing. What does that mean, I hear you ask? Well, I think this is a difficult thing to do But I want to say, consider your life. Consider your life. Are you living righteously? Which you say, well, how do I know? Well, if to live righteously means to live like God, are you living like God? Are you living in conformity to the standards that God has for your life? Are you living the way God would have you live? Live righteously. What does it look like? Well, I take it that it looks... Well, our lives will be holy lives, godly lives. They will be reflecting the very character of God. They will be lives which show change over time as God works in us and as we work at living like God. If I met you in a couple of years' time, three or four or perhaps five, after you've left university, I think if you said to me, actually, I have changed in the last few years and I'm now living more like God, then my heart would be joyful for you because I know that God is working in your life to make you more, to make you live in greater conformity to his character. What also does it mean to live righteously? Well, I take it if you want to know how to live, you need to listen to God. Listen to him when he speaks. Take opportunity to hear him speak to you by reading his word, by having it taught to you, and thirdly, be prayerful in obedience. And be prayerful for obedience. Ask God to help you change. Live righteously. So, friends, consider your life this very afternoon and for the next week. But, secondly, my question is are you living patiently? Well, I know when I was at your stage of life, I didn't want to be patient for anything, I wanted everything and I wanted immediately. And as I know some of you, I know that's what you desire now. But the message here from Habakkuk is live righteously in patient rejoicing. Sometimes you will need to wait for God rather than rushing on ahead. And I take it that one of the realities of this is we are to be patient in looking and longing for Jesus' return. Do we know when it will come? Yes, absolutely we do. It will come suddenly. It will come unexpectedly, and it could come this afternoon. But if it does not come this afternoon, then live patiently, expecting it to come tomorrow or next year. And be patient. Thirdly, rejoice. So notice how Habakkuk finishes in chapter 3, he rejoices despite his situation. And this rejoicing, I take it, should be a deep, Contagious joy that just wells out of us. Are you a joyful person? Because I actually think joy is one of the products of living righteously. Because you understand who God is, how He works in your life, and how He is changing you to make Him more like His dear Son. So consider your life. And if you are not joyful or are perhaps lacking in joy, then turn back to God. Not only should you be doing this individually, but I take it it should also be a measure and an indicator of our corporate life together as well. Not only as Christians in the EU, but also in your local community. And why are we ultimately joyful? Well, we're joyful because in God we have a great Saviour who has saved us because of the death of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks that you are a God who saves Father, please forgive us when we are not thankful for this and when we are not joyful because of it. We ask, please, Father God, that you would help us to live righteously in this world while we patiently await the return of your dear Son. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.